zoom, 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 say, wow, come, eh. Ladies and gentlemen, we're ready to set the You're session. listening to Respect it, You. Uh, we open it up. Uh, say, uh, good evening and good afternoon. Uh, like say, uh, well, welcome in. Come. Welcome in. For this project, we've invited UK creatives, journalists and heritage organisations to nominate an individual who's had a big impact on their creative journeys. The individuals nominated for Respect You are people who have inspired and innovated in their field. People who have demanded change and paved the way for generations to come. Their achievements will be showcased in the Museum of Colour along with portraits by the artists Grace Lee, Erin Say and Naki Nar. The Museum of Colour is a digital museum celebrating 250 years of creative achievement by people of colour. In this audio series, you will hear from the nominees themselves. Just a quick warning for listeners that this interview contains references to sexual assault. I'm Samanwar Sesha, Director of the Museum of Colour, and this is the voice of Amrit Wilson, the renowned writer and activist. I grew up in India and I did my first degree there as well, so I went to college there. Um, I was very much influenced by my mother, particularly, who was quite a remarkably um, strong, but also very perceptive and sensitive woman. She taught me to listen to people and to to feel what they felt, to to empathize, and to do that on a very wide, with a very wide range of people, even people I didn't agree with, you know. And the other thing she taught me or she she gave to me was a real love of literature. She would uh, read to me in um, both in Bangla, which is our language, and also in English, showing me the beauty of words and language. Amrit was a founding member of the UK's first Asian feminist collective, AWAS. AWAS campaigned against the infamous virginity tests performed by immigration officials on women arriving at Heathrow Airport on marriage visas. They also supported South Asian women's workplace struggles and founded the first refuge for Asian women. Amrit was also a member of OWAD, the Organisation of Women of African and Asian Descent. She is the author of four books, including Finding a Voice, Asian Women in Britain, which was awarded the Martin Luther King Award in 1978. I actually came to activism comparatively late. I was involved in Indian students groups, but, you know, nothing very much about Britain. And then when I decided to stay here, and particularly when I had my daughter, when I had my first child, I realized what it was like, you know, living in this country, actually living here. And the scale of racism was very intense, you know, um, from being threatened on the street to being not being given proper care in terms of health and other things. So that was certainly something that made me very conscious that it was not really possible for me to live in this country without doing something about it. And also in that phase, I I met people who lived here, you know, rather than only students. 
And this was like a real, um, it, it was a real milestone in my life because I realized that I could, uh, I could be an activist. I could work with people in this country, which seemed uh, almost impossible when I first came here, you know, because I hadn't met people like me. I'd only met like students out of the science student and it was mainly science was populated by white men. So, you know, to, to meet the community, to be part of it, to, to feel with it, made a huge difference. Amrit started her career as a freelance journalist, working within the community, sharing their stories and experiences. There was that whole period before I was, which in a way also informed my book. Um, because I, um, when I started working, you know, being involved with various communities, those days, community work, well, it still is you know, highly political, but it was perhaps even more so at the time. Because people did it because they had to. They didn't do it because they had funds, you know, there's no funding system. And so I was involved in, in writing their stories, trying to publicize the injustices and also trying to be part of organizations. What was it like for you being a young journalist at the time that you went into journalists? I mean, it's, it's a very male arena, more so then. What, what was it like for you? I suppose I, for them, I was such an oddity um, because I was very strong in what I said. I mean, I knew what I wanted. I wanted to get my stuff published. And, you know, I went all out for that because I felt that people's lives were at stake. And I was writing about real people and I wanted that out. I wanted that to be known. Um, so they used to regard me as um, perhaps eccentric. I don't know, but... <laughs> I didn't care, to be honest. You didn't care. You got published. You got your work yeah, out. But, but it was, it used to be a huge struggle. I mean, I used to go and, you know, have major conflicts with them. And I used to often go and just sit there until they gave me their attention and accepted what I was doing. You know, I mean, I had, um, it, it was difficult. It wasn't at all easy. This uh, one place they used to regard me, appalled me, in fact, the ghetto journalist. You know, so, Ooh, yeah, get a journalist. Wow. Just, so yeah, it was tough. It was tough. Okay. So talk to me a little bit about what it was like setting up hours. Well, there were about um, four or five key key women who were involved. Most of them were very young. They were younger than I was, and um, but there were two two who were older, slightly older. One of them was a community worker herself. You know, she could tell us about the kind of state policies, um, the way in which racism is inbuilt into the system. And not only racism, but also misogyny and um, the particular racisms which we face as Black women or Asian women. So she, she was very, um, very important in that sense. But equally important were the young women who were growing up in this country and facing um, both patriarchy as well as um, racism, having huge problems at places of work, which were quite low paid. And remember, this was the first generation which was growing up in this country for Asians, certainly. Um, so the, this combination of these young women and the slightly older women uh, was very powerful. And um, 
we started off educating ourselves politically and also being active in a whole variety of different struggles. What do you think of as as one of your major achievements with with our something that you you felt you did that you're really proud of with the organization i think you know there were two things which were very important the first one was that we at least for that period stopped the virginity testing of asian women virginity testing was an appalling practice which unfortunately i think probably is happening today as well when women are given sexual examinations so it's basically sexual harassment to prove as it were that they are virgins or they have been married and they've had sex and so on if they said you were a virgin then they would claim that you couldn't be somebody's wife right and if you're not a virgin then you couldn't be their fiance and i in fact first came across it as a journalist in because somebody rang me and said and people in the community knew me very well rang me and said that their cousin was had just got married and had come over to join her husband and she was in a very bad way at Harmonsworth detention center which is near Heathrow so i went down there and i met her and she told me what had happened and she was so young you know just about 18 19 years old and um and it was just so i mean she was in so much pain mentally and physically emotionally um so i wasn't going to let that go i said i would write about it and i rang the minister for immigration eventually got through and i asked him what what this was why was this happening I mean, how ridiculous can this be So what they did in those days if you rang somebody up and challenged them then that particular case would be let through but of course there would be others so um that was the beginning i wrote about it but then it carried on happening so eventually uh we had a demonstration and the indian workers association those days was a big organization they joined us and then later we had a sit in at heathrow with our sisters from owad who were working with us at that point and with these two big protests they had to finally give in and say that they were not going to do it so that i think was quite a major you know we felt very good about it we felt very happy the second thing was a big national demonstration against police brutality that we organized and we did that again with um, indian workers association and those days Brixton Black Women's Group you know we we had never done this kind of thing before nor had Brixton Black Women's Group so we were like so excited to be in charge you know actually doing this you know with thousands of people coming it was very inspiring for us really to see that see a movement forming as it were you know with us as part of it. yeah no no it's so important and i was thinking about because you mentioned this police brutality and and it would be good to think it was over but we know that it isn't no. and one of the things that seems to have come out of the recent black lives matter movement 
was South Asian people committing to tackle anti-Blackness specifically within their own communities. But I'm really aware that in your work, you've always collaborated with other activists, with OWAD, and you mentioned the Brixton Black Women's Group. Can you tell me from your perspective, why it's so important that Black and Asian women come together to fight racism? I think um, if you think about racism, it comes out of a history. It comes out of a history of colonialism. And it's not only a history, it's something which is continuing. It's not not as colonialism, but as imperialism. We see the countries of Africa, we see the countries of South Asia, all of them, in a sense, caught in this web of oppression and exploitation. So, you know, that, that's one reason that we have so much in common. I think the other reason is that, like it or not, both Asians and people of African origin face racism in this country. Now, there's been a lot of confusion because on the one hand, you have the development of classes within our community. So you have tremendously well-off Asian people and also a few very well-off people of African origin. You have the, the Kwesi Kwatengs of this world, you have the Preeti Patels of this world. So we have to acknowledge that there is class difference. But we're talking here about working class people. And there have been huge attempts to divide us by the British state. The whole war on terror has now turned into a really raging Islamophobia. Um, and at the same time, anti-Black racism is so powerful and so deep and, and, and goes everywhere. The problem we have now is before Black Lives Matter is comparatively recent. And so they have work to do in terms of creating this consciousness of, of the need for unity. There's a lot of debates now on who is Black and who is not. As far as I'm concerned, I'm not interested in labels. You know, I think the main thing is that we work together and we have solidarity because we had our past which unites us. We have the present which unites us. And I think we do have a future which unites us. So, so beautifully put. So in 1978, you wrote your first book, Finding a Voice, Asian Women in Britain, which was published by Virago. Can you tell me a little bit about that book and your motivation for writing it? You've mentioned it already, but let's, let's focus on it. Well, the book was really the work which I had been doing till then through my journalism and so on, plus a lot of extra interviews which I did with Asian women. And the idea was that many women I met had said that they hardly ever spoke about themselves and that they wanted to, they wanted people to hear it, but that often there were barriers to it. And so I thought it'd be nice if they spoke out in this book. And that was one reason why it was called Finding a Voice in the sense that they were speaking out for themselves. What were the main issues that came up when you were interviewing the women? And were there any commonalities that, that sort of ran through those interviews? Yes, there definitely were. And some of those things are still very important in Asian women's lives today or, you know, Black women's lives as well, I think. For example, the, the first chapter which I wrote was, I'd call it isolation. 
But in fact, if you reading it now, I was reading it again recently, and I realized that a lot of it was about mental um, mental health and what loneliness and racism does to people, and then what kind of treatment they're given. Um, so, and also there was a huge amount of racism within the mental health hierarchy. Uh, plus, there was the pressure, the terrible pressure of living in a racist society where you could be attacked any night, you know, if you go out of your home. Um, so that there was that, and there were certainly commonalities in that. Then there was the issue of the family, how the Asian family responds to living in this society, how South Asian patriarchy is remolded, sometimes strengthened by coming to Britain. And what that means, how a, a woman's, uh, the way she behaves, the way she dresses, who she sees, where she goes, is kept under strict control on, in, on many occasions. And up to a point that still occurs, although perhaps less so now. And then there's, um, there was also, and these were all common themes, you know. And then there was also the question of uh, work and the low paid jobs, which at that time um, Asian women did and how they struggled against them. Now, while that's, you know, one may think the image of Asians now is that they are middle-class well-off, but you only have to go to places like Leicester where you'll see the sweatshops. Again, with the workers are all Asian and most of them are women. So, you know, those issues were commonalities then and they are also there. Today, then there was a question of immigration, which was, you know, as I said before, it's an ongoing issue for us. Did you imagine we would be grappling with so many of the same issues today? Because the truth is, Amrit, if you had asked me in sort of, I don't know, the mid 90s, if we would be in this place in the next century, you know, sort of 20 years in to the next century, I, I wouldn't have been able to see it. Um, but you know, that we are still dealing with racism, sexism, classism in 2021. Um, I'm really interested to hear your perspective on this, given that your book, first written in 78, was republished by Daraja Press in 2018. How do you feel about where we are now? Well, you know, when I wrote the book, I wasn't thinking about what happens in the future. I was so intensely locked in that particular period of time. But looking back now, I think what it shows us more than anything else is the way in which capitalism and the British state have developed. You know, because in the 1970s, we see all these sort of elements of the authoritarian state being set up. You know, we see the anti-terrorism laws, in that case, used against Irish people, we see, which have now become, you know, draconian laws. We see um, the Immigration Acts uh, being brought in uh, retrospectively in some cases in the 70s. Um, we see the detention, the first detention centers, which I mentioned earlier. You know, now it's commonplace for people to be locked up like that, you know. And then, of course, police powers. Police powers were increased tremendously. Um, immigration officers could suddenly operate all over the country. And now this is so common as well, you know. Um, and of course, uh, even the police methods like 
kettling, for example. Kettling was something which started in the late 70s. You know, I remember the Grunwick strike where women, where the protesters were all kettled and beaten up viciously. And things like the Sus Law, which has lived on under another name. So all these things were set in motion at that point. But I think there was a difference. I think the difference was that this British state did all this, operated this on its own, right? But now it's being done by big multinational companies, by corporations, which are not accountable to us. At least we could ask the government to be answerable to us in theory. But here there's no accountability at all. You know, we have Serco running detention centers and involved in sexual violence against women. We have you know, G4S, which was involved in killing someone, killing Jimmy Mubenga while deporting him. And these things did not happen in that way because they were not run by big business. Why do you think it is that the lot of women, given feminism, given the push for women's rights, why do you think it is that women find themselves in the place that we do today? As I said, I think, you know, capitalism has developed in a way where they use everything. Everything becomes a commodity, whether it's our culture, whether it's our bodies, even our sexualities decide, you know, the whole sexualization of women's bodies for profit. There's nothing wrong with, with flaunting your sexuality. But what is wrong is when somebody makes money out of it and it's not in your control. And we see that, we did not see that in this way before because the whole profit motive was not as rampant. It was there, of course, but it's not as rampant as it is now because corporations did not have total control. Now they control the media, they control everything. And I think that's one of the reasons. And we as feminists, many of us have not looked at capitalism in that sense. Many feminists have simply looked at uh, you know, oppression by men. You know, don't think I don't acknowledge that, absolutely. But we also have to look at the framework within which it's happened. And I think that was not done enough. Plus, of course, there were many divisions within the feminist movement, as I'm sure you know. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So given all of this, do you see any signs of hope? I'm always hopeful. Um, because how would one live otherwise, you know? Um, I'm also very hopeful of young people. I think they are very inspiring for me. Um, Black Lives Matter, I think, you know, they have done something, uh, not only what we did, but new things, you know? Um, And I particularly like the way they linked up with what's happening in Nigeria, you know? Yes, yes. Because that's, taking on board imperialism. So I think, yes, I'm very, very hopeful. I'm hopeful of uh, organizations like Sisters Uncut. I'm hopeful uh, for those who are fighting the fascist regime in India. So yes, I, I am hopeful, but also I think we need to be hopeful, you know? Need In to a be- sense, you know, if we're activists, what else is there? Do you have any advice for young journalists now? I think keep at it. Have faith in yourself. I mean, that's what uh, served me best, you know. And have faith in your story. 
what you're writing. I think that's a key point because that pushes you forward. Then you feel you have to do it. You have to get it in. And don't be cowed down by all kinds of weird things which are said by upper class white men. Could it be we've come right to the end? So soon, the end, the end. Amrit Wilson was nominated by the journalist Rachira Sharma. Rachira is the staff writer at The Eye. Her stories cover online culture, race and mental health. And her work has been featured in Vice, The Guardian, New Statesman and Broadly. Respect You is presented by me, Sam Sesha, and is produced by Stella Sabin for the Museum of Colour. You can find out more at www.museumofcolour.org.uk. Further episodes of this series are available across all podcast platforms. The music you have heard in this series is from Soweto Kinch's prize-winning album, Conversations with the Unseen. Respect Due is supported by the National Lottery Heritage Fund and the Paul Hamlin Foundation. Thank you for listening. Make you think you're in a cave and your shadow can speak. Cool. Nah.